This is Strange Assembly, episode 122, Euphoria. Not that that's the only thing we're going to talk about, but that's going to be the thing that is the the full review that we're going to do. Then we are going to launch... Also, that's just general, Chris's general state of being in response to these games. <laughs> oh, wait, no, the other one. Never mind. <laughs> I don't know. who you, you haven't heard me go through them yet. How do you know whether or not I'm going to have changed my opinions? Psychic powers. In the last five minutes. That was Jay Earl. I am Chris Stevenson. Also here is Mike Cook. Yep. Hey, and what we are going to do today is talk about Euphoria and then try to go through and I say quickly, but I'm kind of constitutionally incapable of doing that. So we'll Qu- quickly for us. So it'll only be three days. Don't worry. Quick, quickly with a dex of eight. Yes. <laughs> to go through some, uh, mostly, except for one, 2013 games, now that we're done with 2013, uh, and, and try to go through them. These are not uh, things that we're, you know, gonna, we don't want to spend 10 minutes talking about each of them. We, we just only have so much time in the world that we haven't played them enough to give them a full treatment. But we've, you know, we've played them and we want to say something about them. And the exception to that is Euphoria. Uh, oh, but yeah, this is Strange Assembly. We should probably say that at some point, other than the header. This is Strange Assembly. It's a board gaming podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, strangeassembly.com. Did you mention this is Strange Assembly? Because that's an important part. Yes, I think they've got that by now. But only only when I say it. When I say it, it's necessary reinforcement. When you say it... It's redundant. Got it's it. It's obnoxious redundancy. Yes! I'm glad that you I mean, picked up on that. It's me. The obnoxious is assumed, right? Ah, yes. We can only hope. Okay. So, Euphoria. Now, Jay kickstarted Euphoria. I kickstarted Euphoria. And and Mike just kicked it. Well, I think both of us were really looking forward to get this. I was very much looking forward. I was very happy when it you know, got that, that shipment before Christmas. And it was kind of funny. I took it to a, a board game meetup right after I got it, and so my first game was this five-player game, and it was my game, and it was a brand new game, and I was the only person at the table who had not played it already, because everyone else had played it when it was when the it was available as a print and play during the Kickstarter. So, I think it was reasonably highly uh, anticipated. So, Euphoria is. I don't, dice worker placement ish, although it might not be a worker placement by by some strict definitions of that. It is set in a dystopian future. You are a citizen of the dystopia who has realized that this is not some idyllic utopia as the propaganda machine is telling you that it is a dystopia, and um that in the subtitle of the game is Euphoria, building a better dystopia. But instead of fleeing this city and making your own life elsewhere or or trying to subvert it and overthrow it and improve things you've decided to you know just accumulate as much authority as you can go with the flow so yes yes you want to end up being the one who is running the city from behind the scenes and so are the other players so over the the course of the game you will take various actions that ultimately let you place authority tokens you get 10 authority tokens out you win I would say that the basic flow of the game is that you have dice, and the dice are your workers. They're just six-sided dice. 
it's not like Alien Frontiers or Castles of Burgundy, where where you go is restricted by what the roll of the dice is. And you'll alternate your turns. You'll mostly be putting one die out a turn. And then when you run out of dice, your turn will be to pick up all your dice. So there's just a continuous blending of dice. These dice are your workers, these people you control. Every time that you pull your dice back up, you have to roll them. And if the no- and the numbers on them represent their knowledge. And if your workers get too much knowledge, they realize what's going on. They realize that they're being controlled. And the smartest one of them will leave, thus uh, reducing you back down to a, a smaller number of dice. Quote, unquote, voluntarily. Yes. And, and then basically over the course of the game, you, I would say that you are playing your workers and your workers are then acquiring basic commodities energy food water um drugs drugs yes bliss which is clearly a drug you know to placate things and i do particularly like just to interrupt in the middle of my basic explanation when you pick your workers back up you can either just pick them back up and do nothing else and your morale will go down by one or when you call them back in from the fields or whatever you can deign to feed them. You can give them one food or one bliss. <laughs> and then their morale will go up by two. So basically, you can feed them or drug them. Either way, <laughs> either way, they'll be happy if they're fed or so high that they can't tell. Well, this is like Final Fight, where hard liquor was a health pickup. <laughs> <laughs> well, I liked, uh, what is it, Eternal Darkness, Sanity's Requiem, where... Your sanity points were restored by liquid courage. Yeah. Or or Max Payne, where your health was restored by (laughs) painkillers. So, basically, you're you're getting the commodities, then you're using those commodities to get brick or stone or gold, and to get those resources and to get artifact cards, which are a baseball bat or rubber balloons or a copy of Viticulture. And... Then you can trade in, in various ways, your resources or your cards for authority tokens. And and authority tokens are how you win the game. The other thing that's going on constantly throughout this, there are four pre-established factions in the city or in the environs. There's the Euphorans, who actually live in the city. There's the Subterrans, who live underground, Metropolis-style. There are the Wastelanders, who live outside the city but generate the food for the city. And then there are the Icarites who live up in the Zeppelins and they cloud mining is how they get bliss. In addition to your workers, you have a recruit or two. And if you have a recruit from within a faction, you can get extra benefits from that faction. So over the course of the game, you will try to take actions that increase the allegiance of the faction that you have recruits planted within. And that will get you benefits like getting extra commodities when you go to the the basic assign here to take some food, assign here to take some energy spots. There's a spot where like there's something called a tunnel where you can get a food or sorry you can get a resource or a card. And then once you've gotten far enough in the allegiance, you get both of those. And then eventually you get an extra victory point for a recruit of that faction. If it sounds like there's a lot of little mechanics going on there, it's because it is. It's one of those things that I think plays a lot quicker and more simply than it sounds like when you explain it. Would you you agree, guys? Yeah, once you get the hang of all of the mechanics going on, it's it's at first a little overwhelming with all the moving pieces, but 
and it also, I think, plays faster than it might sound because what the reason I said that it's not necessarily as as strictly a worker placement is that most of the places on the board you can get bumped. So I will go there, and it's not that you can't assign there. It's just that if you assign there, my die goes back to my worker pool, which gives me more turns of playing out my dice until I have to take a turn pulling everything back up. And that lets you plan ahead a lot more than you would be able to do in in a lot of worker placement games where you don't know what options are going to be closed off until your turn comes around. Uh, I, I mean, the, the box says an hour. I think if it's not a first game and you don't have like six, five or six people, I think that's actually pretty realistic. And usually that's not for a game that sounds as complex and heavy as that. But I think that is a realistic number. As long as people actually are paying attention and have thought about their turn before their turn comes up. If you have somebody who has not given any thought to their turn until their turn comes up and then spends five minutes thinking about it, that's a problem. But that that's not the game. That's the that's, guy. Yeah, that's always a problem. I, I will say that, that uh, the me- mechanic of being able to bump is probably my favorite out of everything in the game. I, I think that's the one thing that I, I really did enjoy. Or not enjoy, but I, I think the one uh, mechanic that I thought was probably the best. It was probably the one that added potentially. Yeah, I mean, as I've said before, I think there are a lot of individual mechanics that I really like in this game. It's just somehow all of them put together just isn't what I was hoping for. It, yeah, and I think that's it. And partially, I, I, I'd say I'm... I guess it's accurate to say that I've ended up disappointed by Euphoria, which to some extent is a little unfair. I'm usually not disappointed by games. It's just that I was so excited to get Euphoria, and the game looks absolutely gorgeous, and if you got the Kickstarter one, all the little authority tokens are wooden, and the resources are great, like, they're these big, heavy gold hunks, and and round, stone-looking uh, stones, and then the, the brick, or I Bricks. think it's technically clay, but you call it brick, because it looks like a brick, it's all pitted, and, I mean, they're they're really neat resources, and you can either use those, or they actually have something that, depending on what your preference is, there's a little multiplier board, and its intention, I think, is if you just have so much stuff that you're going to run out, you can use the multiplier board to show, like, oh, this is three stone instead of one. It's a great idea when you're playing, you know, the, the game supports up to six. When you're at six people, and there's a run on some resource, you could be running out of tokens, whereas the multiplier board means everybody just needs a couple and you're good. I mean, I've even playing with five, I, I don't know if we never came close to running out of a resource, but it, even just setting aside, like, it's there, there's seven different resources, and you've got all these nice tokens, and you have to reach across the table, and, like, where do you put everything? And if you want, you can just kind of give everybody two of each resource in each commodity, and they can sit there, and as long as... You can trust them to keep, you know, people have to keep track. You have to make sure not to swack the multiplier board somewhere. But that can make it a lot easier to just keep track of everything and do it faster without the reaching and all that. And some people will like that less because they want to have their pile of gold bricks or something. But I I think once, and I've played with 
have I played this like five different groups now? Because I was so excited about this. I made sure to play it with a bunch of different groups. It's a lot of effort to get something played in that many different groups that quickly. But I, I don't think I had a game yet where anybody's had more than seven of a commodity. So like there was only one instance where just having two of a commodity sitting right there would not have covered it for you. And, and not even that much. Not, not even, and never above six for a resource. You just don't get that many of them or, you know, when you get three or four, you're cashing them in. Right, you don't, it's not that you're not getting them, it's that you don't stockpile them. Over the uh, yeah. course of the game, you're probably going to have gotten a whole stack of resources, but you should be spending them nearly as quickly as you're acquiring them. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, I guess I agree with Jay that there's a lot of nifty things in there, but yeah, it, I just couldn't get excited about it when I I played it. It, it felt too mechanical. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I, I just can't put my f- I can't put my finger on what it is, but somehow something is just not what uh, I was wanting it to be. To me, I really like the Sid Meier definition of a game, which is that a game is a series of interesting choices, and I never felt like any of my choices were really that interesting. So by the same token that I like that you can bump anybody, it never really felt like you couldn't do something so. Other than, hey, I give you an extra turn, I'm not really losing anything by doing that. Well, yeah, the, the biggest the biggest way of, of messing other people up was the constructed markets. Like I said, you're ultimately turning resources and cards into victory points. And the, the Icarites kind of do their own thing where they have some just automatic resource space, uh, market spaces on the board where you are, you know, one is turn, it's literally just turn commodities into resources of your choice, turn commodities into cards, and then dump resources to turn them into victory points, and everybody has a dump cards to turn it into victory points. But the other factions have these constructed markets, and they are, I believe, by far the most efficient way to get victory points in the game. And they're one of the few assigned spots that only one person can go on, and you can't be bumped. And each each of these constructed markets has four spots next to it and how many have to be assigned to depends on how many players there are it's it's two for two or three players and then it's one less than the number of players until you get to six and then it can't be more than four because there's only four on the board and and each of the spots requires a resource it's and it's coordinated with where it is in the city but ultimately what it ends up being is except for a two-player game it is a spot where you get to do one assignment and one resource, and you get one victory point out of it. Early in the game, what you're kind of constantly doing is you need to make sure you have resources right away, and then you're you're constantly looking for the situation where you start the market, somebody else finishes it the same round, go around, yeah. or vice versa. Yeah, you you want to look around because you don't want to be the guy who's left out because. If you're in on the construction of the market, you get to place an authority token on it. So if you aren't in on the construction, you don't get that efficient authority token. But also, each market has a penalty to it that if you don't have the authority token on it, you suffer some penalty. And some of those are kind of random and small, and some of them are can be brutal. Like There's one that says you cannot assign to the Icarites at all, which is a big deal because... The Icarites are generally much more useful than any other faction, or much more frequently assigned to. That's one way you can interact, and so 
and, and it introduces one element of randomness, which we'll talk about in a second. There's also the recruits. So that's one. Okay, that can be one element of randomness. Let's just talk about that now. One element of randomness is, is this constructed market that you got cut out of one that doesn't do much, or is it one that hoses you? Unless you play with some one of the variant rules, it's just random. The recruits, you start with four at the start of the game. You get to have one starting active and face up. You have one that starts face down, and they flip face up under certain conditions. And some of the recruits are amazing early game. And some of the recruits are good late game. And some of the recruits are just terrible. And if you don't get a recruit that's good early game, that's very bad for you. And so there's another random. Also, if you're not sure, make your secret recruit an Icarite. Because the Icarites will get messed with enough. They'll go up, yeah. Like, one of the ways that you can trigger somebody being revealed is if the uh, the faction allegiance goes high enough and the Icarite faction allegiance is going to go high enough. I, <laughs> well, uh, the, the other RNG thing to that is the end of the tracks, which are, hey, when you hit the end of this, you can flip up any of those and then you can score them. In the game that, we, that I played with Jay, I happened to get two, I got two of the same faction and then when I completed my quest or whatever, I got the other one of the same faction or whatever. I, so I had three of the same faction. So one of my keys was just, I just advanced that track, which is real easy to do, and other people are doing it too. I just advanced that track, and when I got it to the end, I got three victory points out of, like, the five you have to score. Out of ten. Oh, is it ten? Yeah. Well, yeah. It's, still, it's still real easy points, like very, very easy points. Well, there are downsides to that. Like I said, the Icarites get advanced a lot. I think how tightly or loosely you want your recruits to be varies with how many players there are. If you're playing a, a game with a small number of players, there's probably not going to be a lot of overlap. It benefits you, I think, to then try to pick out of your recruits to try to get two that are the same. Or like I said, if you can't get two of the same, make the hit sec- second hidden one in Icarite. But once there are a bunch of players, now probably somebody else is flogging the same faction that your hidden one is so that can be helpful but the reason that you don't want to just all be in one faction is that now you can't get the benefits of anything but that faction although i think you're right that maybe that doesn't matter as much as it's it's supposed to because other than a few times assigning for commodities you don't care that much about being cut out of a particular faction, or not that getting much out of a particular faction, partially because if you need the resource that's specific to that faction, you can just go to the Echorites, trade one Bliss, trade one of whatever your commodity is, and get any two resources back, which is one of the reasons why the Echorites get assigned to a a lot. What's funny, I don't think I assigned to the Echorites once all our entire game. Well, I've... Yeah, I've I've had that... uh, come up i I mean i think that's noteworthy enough that that once i had played several times when i was teaching new people how to play i made sure to say when they're like i don't know what to keep and i'm like well if you're not sure keep an echorite for your hidden (laughs) so uh, but i I don't know there's that there's the tunnels are a little weird i i actually have had a game now where a tunnel got completed all the way i had a number of games in a row where we didn't even come close but one of the I think a potential problem, like mechanically, is that early in the game, 
it's very much about getting in on the constructed markets. Oh, yes. And then once you get your faction to the second stage where you get both benefits from the tunnel, it becomes very much about flogging the tunnel. And I think that's actually one place where it's a downside to have the bump mechanic because it's like I go to the farm, I get three food, and then I sign a die to the tunnel and I trade my one food. My next three turns are just... Yes. Going that same space over and over and over again. Yes, because it's at that point, it's the most efficient way of generating uh, the most efficient way of generating resources and cards. And like I said, that's basically that's what all almost all of the ways of generating victory points are some variation of another of pay cards and resources. Here's an authority token. The the one exception is that in the, the constructed markets do have that's another thing like this randomly the constructed markets have when you construct them let me just try that when you construct the constructed markets what they do other than give you an authority token which is the main thing you care about they open it up another action spot and the effect of all of those action spots is to give you an authority token and to advance the appropriate faction uh the cost for that varies from constructed market to constructed market some of them you only have to discard a resource. And some of them, and here's another luck thing that can go in there, some of them you have to discard a specific artifact and then just one commodity. And if you happen to get that specific artifact, those are very efficient spots too. But, you know, that may or may not come up. I don't know. Well, you know what? One of the other problems with this game is I wonder how much of our audience is going to be able to follow along with how much of this podcast, because it's so complex to even try to explain. Even when you're looking at the board game, there's just a lot of different things that are trying to go on, and they kind of affect each other, but they kind of don't. Well, audience, we apologize if you've been listening for, I don't know, like a half an hour now of this podcast where I'm supposed to try to talk about 14 games. (laughs) There's a reason why I called the episode Euphoria. I mean, I wanted to talk about this. Right. So, okay, so that's uh, Euphoria. I hope that that, I I think, I mean, Mike's right. It's kind of hard to explain without playing it. It works much more smoothly once you play it. I hope that's given you some idea. As you can tell, we don't, I mean, it's not bad or something. It, it, it's enjoyable to play. It's just not exciting. The the main thing to me, I, I think that it really could have benefited from was some way of dealing with your agents better, the, the cards that you get. Because once you get them, that's it. And there's, like, no changing it, there's no trading it, there's no getting more or anything like that. And I can kind of understand that, but I really feel like the game might have had more depth if I could, like, try and cycle to get to more like what I'd want. Well, I I, I don't know if you really want to cycle it. I, I have thought about doing something like, I don't know, like, weeding through the, like, if you would benefit from weeding through the recruits to kind of try to identify early game recruits. Or, like, have a stack that here are early game recruits. And then here are the other recruits and like giving you two from each one. Because like I said, if you, if your recruit choices are things like every time you bump a worker with, with higher knowledge from a tunnel, you may gain knowledge to get a resource. Like that takes a while to come up and I don't really want to bump you from a tunnel and it's conditional on the worker, the knowledge. And some other player has early game stuff like every time you assign to the farm, get an extra food. Right. Or as long as you have no artifact cards in your hand, which for the 
early part of the game, you have will never have artifact cards in your hand. Every time you assign to the water resource generator, you get an energy too. That's amazing. Yeah. But I don't know. That is Euphoria by Stegmeier and Stone, and therefore from Stonemeyer Games. But I'm still looking forward to see the Viticulture expansion Kickstarter later, like in the spring, right? Because that way I can hopefully yes. y'all be able to get the the fancy Kickstarter version of Viticulture through the Kickstarter. Anyhow. I mean, I, I just want the Grande Meeples out of that. <laughs> I They may have a Kickstarter thing. I'm betting that they will have a Kickstarter level for that that is you get the expansion stuff and you get an the upgrade or something like that for... Right, no, I think he's explicitly said that's one going to be oh. one of the levels. Is okay. For people like me who already have the retail version to upgrade it. Some of the, some amount of it. Yeah, I, I do not have it. I actually, I got the retail version to give, I kid you not, to give to my stepmother because she's a wine aficionado. So that's like, this is somebody that the theme will actually help when she's suffering through games with me. Luckily, my family actually, as long as I choose correctly, my family actually enjoys games. I mean, I have to choose correctly, but anyhow. So now we're going to try to go through things quickly. And as you can tell already, that's not going to happen. No. So the first game is Rampage. This just came out retail. I think people have been seeing it maybe since something like Gen Con. It's a really nifty, fun concept. You are monsters. You are trying to destroy the city. The board has some spots on it. And you build these buildings by stacking alternate layers of meeples and tiles. And over the course of the game, you are going to be trying to move around the board, destroy the buildings, and eat the meeples. And you are physically doing things to do this. Like, you have a little disc that is your monster's paws, and to move, you have to flick the disc. There are little vehicles on the board, and if your monster is in the same neighborhood as a vehicle, you can pick it up, and you you put the vehicle on top of your monster's head, hold on to your monster's body so it, it doesn't go flying, and you flick the vehicle, so you can try to hit another monster or knock over a building. You can blow things over. You put your chin on the top of the monster, and you you huff and you puff and you blow, and probably you blow a bunch of meeples off the board, which is bad, but that's okay, because this is not really supposed to be a serious strategic thing. You get two cards, you get a character and a power. Well, you get a super secret power, but whatever. You get a character and a power. One of them, the the character gives you an objective, like the young monster wants to try to eat the gray meeples, which represent old people. This, the monster that's a seer at the end of the game has to say, you don't really have to predict. You have to have paid attention and remembered who's eaten the most meeples and say, and if you get it right, then you get victory points. And then you've got uh, a power which lets you do things like demolish buildings differently or I played and I had climber, which lets you put your disc on top of a building before you flick it. Oh, did I mention you could just pick up your monster and smash it into a building? Well, or drop it. You're not really supposed to smash it. The game that I played, it was fun for like the first 80% of the game. Then it kind of got in this stagnant position. I think it's really nifty, and I think it's that something that you should go out and play. I'm not so sure that it's something you should go out and buy, because I don't know how many plays of it it's going to stay fun for once the novelty sort of wears off. But but it definitely was uh, you know fun until that. I, I say until you got to the end because once all the buildings get knocked down, if we we kind of ended up at the spot where like there was one building that wasn't down entirely, and so 
the best strategic play for everybody ended up always being like just trying to throw things at the other monsters and once the buildings aren't there to smash anymore it's not quite as fun but that was rampage by antoine balza ludovic moblanc published by uh, as modi and uh, repos Ooh, seven wonders i like that too <laughs> okay jay what, what's next I think next up on the agenda is Star Realms, which was another Kickstarter game that was kickstarted this summer and just recently got out to everybody. This was designed by, I think, some ex-Magic like Magic Pro players who wanted to build a deck-building game, but like Trevor, they didn't like that none of the deck-building games involved conflict, so it's all about conflict. So it's it's a deck building game in the style of Ascension where you've got a middle row that's constantly changing with things you can buy, but where other games would have like a two resources like, like Ascension has I'm gonna buy things or I'm gonna fight the monsters in the middle row. This has I'm gonna buy things or I'm gonna fight the other players. The base game is just a two player game, but if you buy multiple copies that are different multiplayer rules and variants like you like you would see in magic where you can play two-headed giant or emperor or just free for all the kickstarter version also had a few cooperative games though why you would fail to beat up on your friends i don't know it also it plays really quick for the most part it's your standard deck builder you start with a base of very simple cards it's it's space themed so they're all ships and planets Basically, you've got ships, which you play for the turn, get whatever their resource is, do whatever their action is, and then they go away. You also have stations, which can hang out, and they need to soak a certain amount of damage, and then they'll go away. And the outposts will basically taunt. If you have an outpost out, you can't be attacked as long as the outpost is hanging out. So that makes... You, you basically have to buy outposts to defend yourself. And you start at 50, and when you hit zero life, you're out of the game. I think I've covered most of the general mechanics of it. Yeah, I think the only uh, other noteworthy thing that I, I can think of that you, I think you didn't mention is that all of the cards have factions. There are four different factions, and much more so than in, I think, than in, like, Ascension, those factions matter because... Many of the, the ships and bases have conditional ability where you have to play two of the, the same kind in a row. So if you, I, I don't well, remember. Just two, the two of the same faction in one turn to be able to activate some of the more powerful abilities. Yeah, and so that, that, that lets you have a little deck building uh, direction, although it wasn't uh, required or anything. They're still off of the same resource. I, I have to say, I played this. And, and and I feel like if I try to sit down and mechanically analyze it, I'm I'm not really sure if I can put my finger on what it is. But I thought this was really fun. No, yeah, I, I definitely like it. I mean, it to me it feels like Ascension, but instead of beating up the monsters, you're beating up each other. Well, yeah, and, but you're not beating up the monsters in Ascension. You're just buying them with another resource. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. that's because beating up the monsters doesn't feel like beating up the monsters, and that. It may not be a surprise. The, uh, the the two magic guys who did it are Darwin Castle and uh, Rob Doherty, and Doherty was one of the guys who did Ascension. Oh, was he? It, yeah. So that may uh, not be surprising, but yeah. So that 
did that just hit in December? Your Kickstarter yeah, copies? Yeah, yeah. The, the Kickstarter came copy came like right before Christmas. So uh, that one, I don't even know who their publisher is other than themselves, but uh, uh, you've got it sitting there, right? Right, White Wizard Games, which based on Doherty, is the C- yeah, I assume it's just them because Doherty is the CEO of it. Okay, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> As with many of the Kickstarters, I think it's a company they made to be their Kickstarter company. So yeah, but I en- enjoyed that, and that's what about twenty bucks for a yeah, it's a about twenty bucks. Although, and it played fine with two players. I one thing that we did not do that I would like to do is is or at least I didn't get to. Maybe you have Jay is to play with the teams. I I don't yeah, think I- that there's a lot to be uh, just because of what I like. I'm not too enthused about. Playing it more multiplayer free for all because that's that's mostly just well, the free base. for all becomes politics. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just I mean you're playing the same game, but like no attack me, no attack him, no do the yeah. I don't know. Right. I mean I, I I'm really looking forward to because it's been the the holidays. I haven't been been playing with my regular group of six people. I'm quite looking forward to playing Emperor with this, seeing how that goes. Yes. Okay. So that was Star Realms. Next up is Going Going Gone from Stronghold Games. Uh, Going Going Gone is a an auction and set collection game. It's up to six players. You play over the course of seven rounds with a 49-card deck. Each of these cards has a picture of some sort of item, like either it's board games or it's cars or it's comic books or, or whatever. And it has a flag, a country flag, Japan, China, the United States, Germany, the U.K., at any time in the game, you can cash back in the cards that you have acquired in these auctions uh, to get money back. So, you know, you've got some flexibility as the game goes on to adjust how your sets are, are working out. As as usual for a set collection, there's this exponential growth in in how they're how much they're worth. But the thing that's different about it is the auction mechanic. The seven cards are divided into five lots. So two of the lots at random are going to have two cards in them, and there are five cups by each of these lots, and you are going to, in a live auction, over the course of a count of ten, put cubes in these cups, and when the auction is done, the auctioneer, one of the players, who the auctioneer is, rotates, they count down from ten to zero, when it's zero, they take the auctioneer paddle, they put it over the cubes, that's the end of the bidding, you pick the paddle back up, you look in the cups, if you win, you get the cards, but lose your cubes, if you lose, you get your cubes back, and you get to go back around next game. It's pretty fast. It's obviously not, you know, a deep game, but it was fast. It was pretty fun. It, except when we got to the last round, and I was playing in a game where the guy who owned the game was not playing, and he was teaching because there were there were six others of us there. And in the last round, he's like, "Oh, here, let me let me be nice and do you a favor, and I'll I'll just hold the auctioneer paddle because that's a, a kind of an advantage for the the auctioneer is that he's the one doing the counting, and so he knows exactly what he's going to say things. But he only gets one hand because one of his hands has to be holding the paddle. He's just like, "Well, let me. I'll hold this for you so you can fully participate in the auction." And so for our seventh round, it was it was the guy going ten out of eight, seven, six, four, three, two, one, zero, bam! And like one player managed to toss some cubes in one cup, and he's like, "I don't know why you guys weren't doing this all along." And and so it was a fun game until it was ruined. Isn't that true of just so many games? <laughs> I, I don't know. It, I, I don't know if that's just me. I don't know if other players would amuse it, because the, the thing is, I know you're not going to go into the details of it, but, but as, a, as a physical matter, people don't react nearly as fast as they think they do. And if I 
splits through a count of ten, and I've like already got the paddle going down when I'm on five, you're not really going to be able to get cubes in. And that kind of like takes the whole fun, like, I don't know. So you can you play going, 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 but don't do that. I'm just saying. I mean, that, that's just one of those taking the fun out of it for the sake of theoretically winning, which is missing the point entirely. Well, he wasn't even winning. It was just, it was like yes. being clever, which I get. Don't, don't get me wrong. I totally get wanting to be clever. I you like that too. <laughs> yeah, but, but there, there are games where you're clever and there are games where it's just really meant to have a good time and have fun. And that definitely well, seems the latter. That's Going, Going, Gone, published by Stronghold Games, designed by Scott Nicholson. Well, why don't we go back to UJ for one of the most high-profile expansions to come out for any board game this year? Okay, so Lords of Waterdeep, the Dungeons & Dragons board game, had uh, Scoundrels of Skullport released this year, which it's one box, but I feel like it's really two expansions in one box there's i'm of course immediately blanking on names of things there's the corruption one and the not corruption one there's there's under mountain which is the not corruption one and there's uh skullport which is the corruption right so under mountain is just it, it adds a couple more places for your workers to go there's like draw some more cards grab a quest and play some cards or grab a couple cubes but it mainly adds more of the more of the cards. It adds more intrigue. It adds more quest. It adds more buildings. I'm sure you have. I have not done the super in-depth analysis of the new cards versus the old cards, but I feel like a lot of the new cards are more interesting. I'm not going to say more powerful, but they have more... They're more complicated. Yes, yeah, more complicated. is. Yeah. Which may or may not be more interesting, depending on what you're interested in. True. But so yeah, it's, that half of it is basically just straight up adding more options, more places for you to go, more cards to draw into, more buildings, all of that stuff. Skullport is where they get interesting new mechanics, because you've got, it's also got more cards, more quests, more intrigue cards, more buildings, but it also adds the corruption track, which, if I remember correctly... It's a little mini board with nine spaces on it. Each of the spaces is filled with tokens that look kind of like skulls. So when you start, it's all filled up, and so there's like negative one is showing. As you do actions, and there are a number of actions introduced that will gain you corruption tokens, and they are very powerful actions, uh, you'll be pulling them off the board. So as more and more corruption tokens come off the board and go to players, you get higher numbers, negative two, negative three, negative four. At the end of the game, that's how many negative points each of those tokens is worth. So if there hasn't been much dipping into the corruption, they may only be worth negative one, negative two apiece. Whereas one of the games I played, because people were playing actions to just burn them out of the game, they were worth like negative nine apiece. Yeah, you're not you're not gonna win if you got a whole bunch of them when they get that that high. Yes, they're they're super amazing actions. If corruption is not worth much, they're not really good actions. If corruption is worth a ton, but of course you don't know at the time you take the action how much they're going to be worth. Right. So it's it leads it leads to a really interesting balancing game of 
do I take this really strong action that puts me in a really good position that could, at the end of the game, cost me huge? Or it couldn't cost me not much at all. So, I quite like Scoundrels of Skullpark, though it does make some of the people in my group's head melt. So, I consider that a feature. <laughs> yeah, I guess I go the other way on the head melting. But, um, yeah, Ooh, Under uh, Mountain, I-, I prefer Under Mountain out of the two. It, like you say, it's mostly more of the same. The quests get a little bit more complicated. You've got quests with, let's call them kickers, where you get a basic thing, but then they say part of the effect is, and if you pay 10, you get three rogues and three fighters. Or there are quests where have there's a bunch of question marks for the cubes, so it'll be like, complete the quest and it's 15. But for each of those cubes that you used, a, for each of those question mark cubes that you used a priest, you get an extra two victory points. There are bigger quests in the basic Waterdeep. The quests topped out at 25. There's a cycle of 40-point quests. And I think just overall, the quests tend to be worth more. The new lords, for both expansion, there's a lord who gets the bonus points for having buildings and missions from the expansion, although the expansion icons could stand to, to stand out a little bit more. If you're playing this for the first time with somebody who is not familiar with those lords, make sure to show them that lord in advance. Right, and show the icons, because, yes. uh, I mean, I, I went back later, and it took me, like, three goes to realize on the buildings, oh, there's the expansion logo. Uh, yeah, and you don't want the person to have to be like, well, I don't understand what my lord does, but I can't ask, because then I have to reveal it. Right, because it's hidden information. Yeah, but then, in Undermountain, then, there's another one that has that doesn't care what kind of quest you complete. They just give rewards for completing lots of them. And then there is a lord who rewards you for having completed big quests. So like every quest that's uh, 10 or more, I think you get a bonus. Mechanically in the buildings, there are a number of... Well, buildings and a few intrigue cards that put... That'll be like, take resources and then put some other resources on other action spots. And then the next person who assigns to that action spot gets it. So there's some strategic things to be done with that. There tends to be more to do with intrigue cards, and the intrigue cards in Undermountain are better. They are just substantially, not maybe substantially. I mean, they are notably stronger than the ones in in the base game. Yes, Skullport. They like you said. Yeah, there's a bunch of things that are do super awesome action, get corruption, or Discard a corruption for lousy action. Like, there's a building you can assign to where you throw away a corruption and you get two bucks or a buck or something like that. You can't really play the expansions together. One of the inconveniences, if you're trying to switch back and forth, is taking them in and out. You can physically mix it all together, but I think especially for the Skullport stuff, if you dilute it too much... It gets weird, like the Skullport stuff, especially with the Corruption, is designed to be a certain percentage of the deck. Well, it's, it's just if if it's too badly diluted, there's going to be less Corruption handed out at the end of the game, so that makes the Corruption to our actions that much more valuable. Well, and it also makes the things that remove Corruption terrible, and it just messes with stuff. They What they recommend is if you play it with, is that you can play it with both, but then you have to remove some portion of the base game intrigue cards and base game buildings. I guess people are super excited about Scoundrels of Skullport. 
I adore Lords of Waterdeep. I think it's not super complex, but that's its upside. It's a an enjoyable worker placement game that I can play with all sorts of people. To me, it was the game of the year for 2012. I like Scoundrels of Skullport. I don't consider it like a must-get expansion because the better part of it is just more of the same. So it's more variety. And so if you like Lords of Waterdeep, you'll like this. The Skullport side, part of the problem is that I think it depends on who you're playing Lords of Waterdeep with. To me, one of the great vast upsides of Lords of Waterdeep is that it is a two-player gamer game that my wife likes. But she does not like corruption. And I think a lot of casual, more casual people that are part of the reason why I think Lords of Waterdeep is so great are not going to like the corruption mechanic because people kind of inherently don't like taking actions that hurt them. They also have a much harder time figuring out whether or not they should be taking the corruption actions, but they just don't like it as much, and that's important. Yeah, I mean, I, I would not play Skullport with a, a casual group or as an introductory to the game, but I think if you're playing with a group that's more towards the hardcore gamers, that's played it a lot, I think it adds a lot of much more interesting options. Yeah, okay, that is Scoundrels of Skullport, the expansion for Lords of Waterdeep from Wizards of the Coast. Up next is another Kickstarter game that just hit. It's Empires of Zidal from Dog Breath Games and designed by Lee Cress. Empires of Zidal is a deck-building game. I would say it's a deck-building economic manipulation game. There's a lot more going on with it than in in most deck-building games. So there are six different currencies. There's straight-up money, and then there's five different kinds of gems, and you use these to pay for things over the course of the game. You are a kingdom, and the way that you buy new cards into your deck is your cards represent workers. And you start the game with a couple of children in your deck, and every single turn you add another child to your discard pile. That's the last thing you do on your turn. Well, I guess the last thing before you draw your new hand. And in order to buy a new worker, you not only have to pay the cost of the worker, but you have to cash in the child. Like basically, that's you're training the child to be a tax collector or a general or a farmer or blacksmith. You mean I can't just subsist on child labor? No, no. The child cards don't do anything. Hmm. And then at the same time, so everything costs either money or or these gems, and you start with a, a market board of the gems where everything is four. And on your turn, you can either buy gems out of the market for silver or you can sell gems. So you can, you know, buy and add back and forth. And generally, over the course of the game, the market will get emptier and emptier because people sell them back when they get worth a lot, but they tend to need to buy them more to, to prove things because not only do you have to pay gems to buy things but you have to pay gems to a lot of times to activate the abilities on your cards it's not like most deck building games where you just play it and it and it does something and the way you win the game is there are six different kinds of victory point tokens and by playing cards you get victory point tokens when one of the kinds of victory point tokens runs out the game is over there are also some buildings you can buy there's a separate little purchase row for those and when you buy those they come into play and they give you an ability for the rest of the the game i think it's an interesting concept but there was 
a lot of fiddliness in it for me. There's there's so many different currencies that it's hard to keep track of what currencies you need to buy different things. You're always constantly peering at everything on the board. How much did that cost? How much did this cost? To me, the economic aspect of the board, like with the market, it added yet another thing to keep track of without getting fun. Like, okay, how much I can trade in? And if I if I sell this gem and I buy that gem, then do I have enough to buy this? Some people enjoy that. I wasn't the one who bought this. The guy who bought this was quite happy with it. But that was not clicking it for me. The other thing is that, unlike a lot of deck-building games, your deck doesn't build up in the same way in this one. In a lot of ways, the best cards are the ones that are in your starting deck. The ones that just say, give me some resources, give me some resources. It's not like Dominion where you start with coppers and then you buy silvers, and now they're just better cards. So over the course of the game, the percentage of your deck that generates resources gets lower and lower. and buying gems tends to get more and more expensive because people tend to buy more out of the marketplace than they sell. And then when they use them, they go back into this this supply. And so it just ends up being permanently a little bit more expensive to buy more gems. It costs more resources every time you want to play your cards, at least for most of them. And your deck just continues to add children whether or not you're able to afford new workers. And so it actually has this weird thing where the mechanics of the game actually tend to choke your deck as the game goes on, which, again, like on, on the, in an objective sense, there isn't anything wrong with that, but that's not really as fun as my deck getting more and more awesome as the game goes on. So like I said, good concept, very fiddly. So, I mean, you have to like fiddly things and you have to like, it'll appeal to you if, Lots of fiddling with exchanging resources between each other appeals to you. If that doesn't, then I don't think it will. That was Empires of Zidal, designed by Lee Kress, and I'm assuming his Kickstarter company, Dog Breath Games. And that also just came out. Well, from the more obscure, let's go to the the more well-known things. And the one 2012 game on our list, although it was not played by many of us, including... Well, all of us, many gamers, including all of us, until 2013. Uh, and what is that, Mike? So that would be Terra Mystica. Terra Mystica is kind of an area control victory point game that goes for six rounds. It's one where everybody takes turns until, well, until everybody passes, and then you start the next round and you play six turns of that, and whoever has the most victory points at the end wins. The entire board is a big, big bunch of hexes. It's a, it's a hexagon board. And all the hexes are eight, one of eight different types of terrain. Every person has a race that they play, which is on the card, obviously, for them. And they only want to build on one type of terrain. So you can change other terrains into the terrain you want, but depending on where it is on the scale, on your personal scale, it'll cost you more. And I believe that's the same for all of the different uh, for all the different races, like uh, it's like one wheel. It's just where they are on the wheel is different for each race. So you take actions to build buildings. You have to build buildings next to other buildings that you have on the terrain that you want. And then you can also, instead of building buildings, you can actually upgrade buildings. And it works somewhat like Eclipse, where 
uh, what happens at the end of the turn when you're getting all of your economy, or I guess the beginning of the turn, when you're getting your economy, what buildings you have out actually tells you what you get to do, uh, what kind of economy you get to gather. So that's why you want to build them is because it actually shows you, okay, well, you get this, this, and this. So one of the things that you want to do is uh, upgrade, build buildings, upgrade your buildings. Those all give you victory points. They also give you resources to do your other things. There are track of actions that you can uh, that you can buy, but only one person gets each one each turn. You actually to start the round, you get to pick something. It's like a unique power. It lets you do two things, and then whenever you uh, to end your turn when you pass, you actually put it back in, and then you put a coin on. Or no, I guess you put a coin on all the ones that aren't used, and then you put it back in, and then the next time somebody else can pick it. And obviously the ones that have not been picked get coins, they accumulate coins so that you might want to pick them even if, you know, something else might normally appeal to you. It's got a, a bunch of different moving parts. Then there's also an element track. At the end of each round, it, uh, the game will randomly look at one of the element tracks and say, everybody who's here, this beneficial thing happens to them if you're above this point or if you're the highest person on this track. There's some victory points each turn that if you do this objective, you'll get victory points for doing that, or you'll get more victory points than normal. It has something of where it's kind of area control, but you kind of still want to be next to people, because if you build, some of your upgrades are actually more expensive if you build the upgrades, if you upgrade buildings that are not next to other people's buildings. So you can't just, oh, okay, here's, you know, here are all my buildings over there, because everybody who's next to a building that you build or that you upgrade actually gets a benefit. They actually get some resource. And then there's also these cups that have little bits. It's like magic cups or whatever. I believe it is magic growing and maturing. Yeah. So that's one of the resources that you can get is being able to move them between these three different cups. And the only big thing is that anything that's in the third cup, the top cup, you can actually spend to do things, to do actions in the game. Whenever you move them, you have to go from your lowest cup up to the next highest cup, and then only when that one's empty can you go from that the second cup up to the third cup. Then obviously you don't want to move the third one out of the down to the bottom when you get that. You just because the third one's where you spend out of. So you play for six rounds. Each race has a special has a couple of different characteristics. They, they each have kind of like a special ability, some way that they kind of cheat in the game. Some they terraform much more easily. Others they get way more points for. Uh, if you get a certain number of structures together, a certain number of points of buildings together, you can make it a city. Some will get more points for getting a city, or it'll be easier for them to get a city. There's a bunch of little options that you can choose. Uh, there's a bunch of little routes that you can go that really help to expand your gameplay options. I think that's pro- probably why I liked it quite a bit. As one can tell from that description, there is an awful lot going on yeah. in Terra Mystica. A lot of it's very strategic. There's a lot of, of variability in like which little powers are out for people to select. Each round, there's a different effect that people can use or a different source of bonus points or, or things like that. Each of the, the races, the faction boards, each board has two sides. I think if you play them on the, the A side or whatever they're called, they're all relatively similar. They just have like an affinity for one kind of terrain and... And one ability, I think if you flip them over to the B-sides, they start to get more divergent. To me, when we were playing it after a round, the only thing I really didn't get was the Magic Cup, and I got that by like round three or four, where I started to understand it. And, and Yeah, and I have to say, it, you know what, I, to, to, 
I'm pretty good at picking up games pretty quickly. I can usually sit down with a game and have it be explained and, and have a, a vague sense of what a reasonable way to approach it is. I sat down and looked at Terra Mystica, and you like look at the player board, and my brain melted. Yeah. But you know what? I, I mean, I think it's worth it going through. I think it's a, it's a very good game. I, I mean, I wouldn't personally, it's, it's sitting in the top 10 on Board Game Geek. I, I don't, I mean, I don't think I'd give it that quite that level of worlds, but it's really quite good and is, is worth going into if, you know, you're a, a fan of, of big complex games. I would definitely say this is a game where at least someone at the table needs to have played it before. Yeah, so it's going to be pretty muddled. Well, yeah. and, 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 you know, it has a nice amount of depth for the amount of time that it takes, because it only takes about, what, an hour, hour and a half, maybe? Uh, well, I guess it probably depends on the number of yes. players, because uh, we had three people and it only took, like, I want to say an hour and a half. I'd set aside at least... I'd, I'd probably plan on it being a two-hour thing, but I don't know. Oh, well, yeah, that's because you're playing, Chris. <laughs> Come on, the manufacturer's the manufacturer's listed time is a hundred minutes, and you know those things are always understated. No, they, they mm. usually are. No, you're you're usually right. I don't. know, Maybe it was just that my time with it was so enjoyable. I didn't notice how long much how long it had taken. Well, yeah, and and of course that I mean that it's also two to five players, and the manufacturer's playing time doesn't adjust by number of players, which right. clearly matters. Uh, well, we were playing with three, and I could have sworn we were done in like an hour and a half. I don't know. We are all pretty proficient gamers. You know, we've played a lot of these types of games. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's possible to play it in 90 minutes, but I mean, you were like an hour or an hour and a half. Yeah, it's, I think it's not like it's not seven wonders fast. Yeah. No, 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 mm-hmm. no. It's and it, it, which is fine. I love, I love seven wonders too, but, but I'm, that's what I'm saying for the, for the amount of strategy you get in this game, I would expect it to go like three or four hours and it's a lot faster than, than I would normally expect it yeah. to go. So that is Terra Mystica. Well, let's go to the opposite, complete and total opposite end of the complexity and playing time spectrum and talk about Walk the Plank from Mayday Games designed by Shane Steely and Jared Tinney. In this game, you control a small group of pirates and each, each player controls a small group of pirates. There's a plank it starts out with three boards on it, and you are programming. And so you have moves like push forward, jump back, things that are going to move your pirates up, move their pirates back, things that will lengthen or shorten the plank, and the object of the game is to be the last player with any pirates alive as the various pirates fall off the plank and get eaten by the sea octopus. So you're choosing the actions that you're going to be taken face down, and then you're resolving them all, and, you know, maybe you choose run forward, and then by the time it gets to you, the plank is not that long, and you just jump in. That sort of thing. It's clearly lighthearted. I think you could play it with relatively young kids. I mean, not like, as much as I pretend, like, I can't actually play any real game with Benjamin because he's three, but I think you could could easily play this with six or eight-year-olds, uh, and they'd perfectly get it, and they'd perfectly like it. I think that that's fun and light and worth checking out. That is Walk the Plank from Mayday Games, and designed by Shane Steely and Jared Tinney. And then I think yours next one is... I, I, I What, I think three-quarters of these Kickstarters? Your next one's Kickstarter too, right, Jay? Yeah, I, 
I got way into Kickstarter over the summer, which means I got a whole lot of Kickstarters in the last month or two. So yes, the, the next one was a Kickstarter. It's called The Agents. It is a card game where you're playing a whole bunch of spies. Basically, you, you've got really two decks. You've got Agents and Missions. And so then there'll be these factions between each player. So if there's three players, I'll share a faction with a player to my left, and I'll share another faction with a player to my right. So when I want to play an agent, I play it on one of those two factions. And basically every agent has an ability that they do, and then either points or an arrow. If they have points, they just resolve and then go to the discard. If they have an arrow, they hang around. And basically... Whoever I put the text facing gets to do whatever the action is. Meanwhile, whoever the points or the arrow is facing to, they get the points for it. As soon as somebody hits 40 points, the game ends with one more round, and whoever has the most points wins. It leads to this very interesting choice of, do I take this really strong action and give my neighbor some points, or do I take the points for myself, giving my neighbor the really strong action? That's the general mechanic of it. There's also uh, the mission cards, which basically are more recurring every turn points. That'll be things like, if I have more agents on this side than on that side, or if there are a whole bunch of dead agents, I'll get some points. Things like that, that'll modify how I want to play to give me more points. Well, and the important thing about them is that they don't take actions to play, too. Whereas right. the agents, you only get two actions, and the agents take actions to play. The missions, you can take an action to require them, but they can drop at any point during your turn. Well, it's, it's the end of your turn. You basically just play out whatever missions you want to be scoring that turn. And yeah, so then also, to get new cards, it's not an automatic thing. As Mike said, you get two actions on your turn, which can include playing agents, but the you can also buy agents. So with your victory points, you can buy agents or missions as part as one of your actions. So I quite enjoy the game. I, I disliked exactly one thing about it, and that's that they use the term faction to describe a base. Like, they should have just called it a base. <laughs> like, faction is so confusing to me. I do have to say that, that of all the things, I still have no earthly clue what I am in this game. Like... I'm not a country. Am I a country? Am I a spy agency? Am I a... What are these missions? Who... Am I being hired? I don't understand... No, no, I'm not asking you to explain it to me, Jay. Yeah, no, I'm... (laughs) You already tried that. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's it's just like... I mean, it actually does kind of feel thematic, but I do agree. It's like, I guess you're kind of a shadow person playing the other people off of each other a little bit. Yeah, and over the course of the game, like, right, agents can move from one faction to another they can they can you know, kill switch. each other yeah they well they can kill each other they can get swapped over the course of the game so now they're what used to be my agent is now your agent i mean so that that's thematic in a general covert ops sort of way i just yeah like especially yeah like calling those things factions i don't i, I, don't, I just thought it was confusing I, normally i think of myself as the faction or I don't, anyhow not that that really necessarily matters but right so that was the the agents designed by uh, Sar Shai and published via Kickstarter this year. One last thing I do want to say about the agents is they got a really nice artist, Danny Morrison, to do all of the art. It all looks beautiful. 
to the point where one of the Kickstarter things you could get was an art book. It's gorgeous art on it. And the cards are very high quality, I would say, yes. actually. It was quite fun. Okay, so next up I will hit Renaissance Man, published by Rio Grande and designed by Anthony... I, I apologize, I don't know if it's Rubo or Rubbo. In Renaissance Man, you are building a, a pyramid of characters, essentially. You have these workers, scholars, merchants, knights, bakers, and you're trying to go through a row of four, row of five, row of three, row of two, row of one. And each of them has icons on the top left and the top right of the card. And, and a visible icon means that you can take that action in that round where the rounds represent you going up your pyramid. So early on, you'll, like, if you just have a guy in the first pyramid, then, you know, you'll, be, you'll only be taking actions in the first round. So it can be really nice to get a guy up into the, the second row because then you can take two actions in a round. But as you're building your pyramid, you're putting the bottom section of the new row covers up the top corners of the cards below it so you can then start blocking off <laughs> your actions below and in fact to win you have to block off all of your actions and you get to take the actions by by playing a card in your hand and i've i've got to say especially since we've talked long enough about everything else i just did not enjoy this game it just the mechanics didn't click it was kind of annoying with your actions disappearing and kind of adding this and that and this little buy pool in the middle and I, I don't know I don't nobody at the table see I mean people didn't hate it. it wasn't awful or something like that but nobody really seemed enthused about it when we played it so there you go that's Renaissance Man from Rio Grande Games uh, <laughs> a ring in- endorsement well I. I, I'd say well, I can't like every game, but I don't think. Yeah, no. <laughs> I don't no. Think that's definitely true. I don't think that's a, a danger of occurring. So you can, can can you like any game? I like plenty of games. I just believe okay. that it's unhelpful to somebody if you say that like if you like every single game. How is that a helpful opinion? No, right. no, no, no. I'm, I'm, no, no. Yes, I agree that <laughs> if you like everything, you're worthless opinion yes well after that one let's go to expedition famous explorers which again was a kickstarter this is a game for two to six players it's by wolfgang kramer and it's an update very i I don't know exactly i have not played the old ones he had two older games wildlife adventure and expedition this one is called expedition famous explorers it's related to those old ones in some way but i haven't played the old ones, so you know what do i know in this game, you have a bunch of dots on a map. I have to say, it kind of reminded me of looking at a Merchant of Venus board. But the spots that matter are either locations or names of famous explorers around a map of the world. And then the other dots are, you know, there are lines connecting them and there are stops, spots that you stop along the way. And what is happening in this game is that there are expeditions going around the world. And these expeditions are represented by green, blue, or red arrows. And so when you are, are taking your turn, you're taking one of these arrows. I mean, if you're, if you're just doing the most basic turn, you're taking one of these arrows, 
putting it from where the expedition is now and then directing it where to go next. You usually have several options for that. But the expeditions are not a player. Anybody can send the blue expedition anywhere. Anybody can send the yellow expedition anywhere. Anybody can send the red expedition somewhere. And what you get your points for is by getting the expeditions to go to the car, to the locations that are indicated on the cards that you have in your hand. There's also a public row, whereas if, if you're the one personally who gets it to go to that location, you can score it. For the ones in your hand, all that matters is that it, it ends up there at some point. There are some effects from the different spots on the board. If you hit a little green dot, it lets you play another X, it lets you play another arrow. If you hit a red dot, it gives you an extra ticket. You can use the tickets to basically take multi-turns by putting down extra arrows or by picking up an arrow that a prior player has put down so you can kind of direct the expedition back to where you used to be. But I thought it was fun. I thought it was a bit different than than usual because you've got this aspect of everybody has their own objectives and you're but you're controlling these these same groups that everyone has influence over. So I thought that was uh, fun and interesting. Uh, that was Expedition, Famous Explorers, designed by Wolfgang Kramer. Okay, Jay, you were going to talk about yet another Kickstarter game. Yep. Everybody yes. must have just been getting their Kickstarters. Well, I mean, I think a lot of Kickstarters aimed for Christmas delivery. So. Yeah. But yes, uh, Twin Tin Bots... I think I remember reading that it was a, a reboot. I may be confusing it with a different one, though, of an earlier iteration that they did with Kickstarter. It's a robot programming game like Robo Rally, where you have a board and you have robots out there and you give them commands and then resolve their commands. But What's interesting about it is instead of Robo Rally's random and constantly changing programs, they keep a persistent program and basically on your turn you only make one change to the program. Also it's twin tin bots. The twin part is that you've got two robots hanging out and so you're only ever changing one at a time. So basically you modify one, and the other is just running wild with whatever had been previously programmed with. The goal is they're out on a board. They move around the board collecting crystals and bringing them back to your base, and the crystals are worth varying amounts of points. Whoever gets to the goal based on how many players are in first wins the game. It's one of those interesting... You have to think several turns ahead because you're only making one change to one of your two robots each turn. To be really effective, you have to be looking far ahead. I mean, if you don't want to do that, you can easily get away with just only doing one little thing, and but you're going to be far outpaced by the people who are just running around the board. And of course, if if you're not very good at looking far ahead and you just start over-programming, it does lead to fun chicken with its head cut off moments of the robot just zipping around the board out of control. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was pretty amusing, but yeah, there's a reasonable amount of like, okay, so if I leave this robot just on his 
turn right, go straight one, turn right, go straight one. Where is he going to be in three turns while I'm busy taking my other robot and trying to get that crystal back to my base? (laughs) Yeah, I I definitely have have had multiple situations where it's like, okay, I'm just going to ignore robot one. He's going to spin in circles over in the corner for a while, and I'll get back to him eventually. (laughs) I don't know. I I thought it was pretty fun, actually. Yeah. Twin Tin Bots uh, was designed by Philippe Kaertz. Uh, it was published by Flatline Games. And that goes up to six players, right? I imagine probably gets more randomy when you're at six players. And now you not only have to deal with what your robots are doing, but the other robots stealing your crystals and running into you and getting your way. And I don't think it gets randomy, more random with six players. It's that... Well, chaotic? I... Yes, chaotic is a much better word for it, that... It becomes that much harder to plan ahead because you can, you know, shove each other and steal crystals. And with two, it's a lot easier to be like, okay, I can just leave that guy spinning in circles and he'll be more or less left alone for the next three turns. That's not going to happen with five and six players. Yes, yes. So uh, then we have seven card Slugfest, which is not a Kickstarter game. It's by, I know, oh my gosh. It's by Brad Tolton and published by Level 99 Games. It is set in his Indines world. Not that I know anything about the backstory of this world who have paid attention to, but, you know, for those who, who care about this, it represents, it's a bar fight. So you represent one particular character and you have a deck of seven cards. That's the seven guards like fest. And in each round, you put out a, like a tile for you and each player has a tile out. And then there's the bartender who has a tile and you have your deck of seven cards that are face down and you are only allowed to use one hand. So you take whatever your offhand is and then remove it from the table and you get to, you pick up each of your cards, look at the front of it and you play it on one of the fighters in the other than yourself in this bar fight. And what other people can see on the card is that on the back of the card, there's a number. What you can see on the card may be different from that. It's almost always the same number, although there's a fighter who makes it a different number, but it may have some sort of special ability. And everybody's just doing this not necessarily as quickly as they can, but it's, it's live. It's not taking turns. You're putting all these out and the numbers represent your, the strength of an attack. As you finish taking your cards, you take one of the beer tokens. So the first player who gets finished is going to take the plus two beer token, or, I mean, it depends on other players. If you play with four, you'll have like the plus two, the plus one, the minus one, the minus two beer token. And then you go and you look at each, of the, the stack of cards on each player, you flip them over so the first one played happens first, and you just add up the strength of those cards, you resolve the special effects as appropriate. They might do things like discard cards that are played after it, or the attack might get put at the back of the staff to possibly happen again. And then you add it up and you see if it does not add up to enough to KO the personality or the character then that character takes the chip representing themselves. They get the a point, or they get that they get the KO for themselves. And the the number where you get KO'd starts at ten, but it's modified by the beer token. So if you finish faster, you get the good beer token. 
it's it's harder to take you out. And if it does add up to at least enough to knock you out, then the player who played the card that knocks you out gets the knockout. It doesn't matter if they played a one and the guy before them had played nine. Cards that come down after the knockout blow don't matter at all. So it doesn't really help you directly any to play the first one because you're never going to get the knockout with that. So you kind of got to get in uh, a little bit later. You play this over a series of seven rounds going through different stages and all the stages matter is that each each round there's some different rule in effect like it might require you to play with a different hand or it might reverse the order that the cards resolve or make you play cards face up or whatever you win some coins victory points whatever you want to call them for having the most or second most or third most or you know depending on your quantities KOs in a round at the end whoever has the most wins it's very random. Obviously, like you're playing things down so quickly that it doesn't really there isn't really time to look at and examine things. Like you've got the numbers on the back of the cards, but you just have no ability to really follow what other players are doing so that you can really plan for how many numbers there are. Uh, so I don't know. That it was okay. It was like fun. It supports up to eight players, which is a lot. I think that there are a good number of people who would like this. It wasn't really my cup of tea it wasn't a problem but it wasn't amazing but i i think there are are people who who would enjoy it more than i did that was seven card slugfest from brad tolton and published by level 99 games because i said how many games there were going to be i guess i should mention the last one which i've decided not to actually give any detail about whatsoever because i don't really want to talk about another complicated game. So I will just mention that City of Iron was the final game. City of Iron was also a Kickstarter by Red Raven Games, designed by Ryan uh, Laukat, who also did all of the art. It is a economic game with some minor deck building, and it's got a bunch of exotic materials like demon blood instead of your usual sand and things you can go and conquer flying cities so it's a relatively heavy game it takes you know at least it takes a couple hours to i thought it was pretty fun you should check it out city of iron sorry i don't think i can uh deal with providing any more detail after the length of this oh so brisk podcast that that i assembled okay do i even want to know i guess i'll figure out later how much how much time we spent per per episode i yeah. You know, I, I think it, uh, Jay's explanation of the robot game was probably the best out of all of those. I think you and I might have gotten a little too, like, in-depth with what exactly the mechanics do. Because I, I think sometimes people are like, you're just like, okay, well, it's a board control game, it's a victory point game, uh, but here are my impressions of it. I think that might be more what... Uh, just because I realized I was talking for, like, 15 minutes, and I'm like, people aren't going to understand what I'm saying, I don't think. I felt like you talked about Terra Mystica longer than it was ideal for the format that we're doing. Yeah, I, I, I think that's the case. And I didn't mean to do that. I was trying to be very brisk. There's just so many mechanics. I just wanted to say, okay, well, there's this, and there's this, and there's this. And I ended up doing, because I didn't go into in-depth for how many different uh, mechanics there were. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, Terra Mystica is very cool. I think, yeah, I as I say, yeah, Tom Vassell does, you know, 16 games in 16 minutes, 19 games in 19 minutes. I'm constitutionally incapable of doing that right. <laughs> we we could do five day five games in five hours i think we might be able to pull that one off 
We probably could. Okay, but whether you like it or not, you have just listened to Strange Assembly. You can check out more of us at strangeassembly.com or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Say hi to us by stopping by facebook.com slash strangeassembly or at strangeassembly on Twitter. You can also email me directly, chris at strangeassembly.com. But until then, for Jay Earl and Mike Cook, I'm Chris Stevenson, and never stop gaming.